Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Renegade Files, where we go deep to explore unsolved mysteries, fringe culture, and the paranormal. I'm your guide, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files, episode 33, The Bet's Sphere. In late March of 1974, the Betts family was dealing with an afternoon brush fire that had sprung up on their wooded 88-acre Fort George Island estate at the northeast corner of Florida, just above Jacksonville. Among the ashes, 20-year-old son Terry Betts found a most out-of-place object. There, amid the still-smoking grass, was a gleaming metallic sphere the size of a bowling ball unmarked and cool to the touch. He brought it home as a curiosity where soon it started to vibrate, roll around the house on its own, display intelligent control, follow people, and cause the family dog to cower. So what exactly is the Bet Sphere? Where did it come from? And who has it now? Put on your Renegade Files shirt, Grab your iced coffee and paranormal investigation backpack and come with me to explore the bizarre and mysterious case of the Bet's Sphere. The Bet's Sphere. This is one of those subjects that started out with me wondering if there was enough material here for an entire episode. Then, getting to experience the thrill, laughs, and emotional realizations that come with a case like this. One that unfolds again and again into all of these facets of a truly unsolved mystery. I had so much fun working on this. By the way, thank you if you're a Renegade Files agent on Patreon. You help me make the show, and because of you, I can keep it ad-free. If you're not already an RFA agent, and you'd like to get bonus episodes and top-secret content, then come check out our Patreon page for free. It's easy. If you're listening right now on Spotify, just look below the episode page and tap the words, See More. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just scroll down. This opens the show notes where you can click the link to Patreon. You can also just go to patreon.com slash renegadefiles. Renegade Files agents on Patreon not only get all of the extra content, but they're a valued part of the show that make all the work it takes possible. And when you help crowdfund the show there, you help me make Renegade Files without ads, and you help me keep it independent. And indie content is the future. Join the Renegade Files Agency on Patreon through the link in the show notes. I can't wait to see you there. Thanks. Now this is a crazy case, and we're going to go deep, so let's get into it. The story of the Bet Sphere is filled with military contracts, government scientists, UFO investigators, allegations of switched artifacts, a haunted mansion, and an amazing woman, Jerry Betts who deserves to be known for far more than just this remarkable and mysterious ball. Fort George Island is inshore and just outside of Jacksonville on Florida's northeast coast, and it should not be confused with St. George Island, which is in the northern Gulf of Mexico under Tallahassee. Fort George Island is a wooded isle among several intracoastal channels between Mill Cove and the Atlantic Ocean along the Fort George Inlet, which divides Mayport from Fanning. In late March of 1974, the Betts family was dealing with a brush fire that had sprung up on their wooded 88-acre Fort George Island estate. Antoine Betts was a marine engineer and his wife Jerry was a successful business owner and active in local politics. 
the fire had nearly run its course through a section of wild grasses, palmettos, and low-lying scrub along one of the property borders, and Antoine, Jerry, and a few of their six children had dug several small trenches, opened irrigation valves to flood some of the drainage ditches in an effort to contain the fire and be sure it didn't spread too close to their prized home, a 21-room mansion known to the locals as the Castle. With the not-too-serious fire contained, Mr. and Mrs. Betts and some of the older children set out to see if they could find the cause of the blaze. After all, their property was on an island with shores along a busy inlet and there was a state park nearby. Had campers unknowingly trespassed and caused the blaze with a mismanaged campfire? Since there had been no recent lightning and the land wasn't near any busy roads, this was the family's initial thought. And if campers were making their way onto their land, they wanted to know about it, especially in light of this fire. While searching for the cause of the fire, Terry, who was 20 and enrolled in college with hopes to become a doctor, made his way to what he thought must be the center of the fire. He made his way and he wondered as he kicked smoldering fronds and limbs aside if here he might find the telltale circle of rocks and withered melted beer cans of a previous night's campsite. He rounded a clump of singed myrtles and ten yards ahead on the burnt smoking sand he first saw it. A silver metal ball. The ball wasn't even partially embedded and it sat on the soil surface as if it had just rolled there from across the field. It was about the size of a bowling ball, weighed 20 pounds, and was smooth but for some superficial scratches and a single small imprinted triangle. 20 pounds is heavy for a ball of that size. Most bowling balls are 12 to 14 pounds and bowling balls are heavy. A 15-pound bowling ball is close to the heaviest. Terry tested the surface with a stick and then a dead leaf and finally with a glancing touch of his finger and in this way he realized that the ball was not hot at all. In fact, it was cool. He picked it up and carried it out of the wooded glen to show his parents. The family speculated that it was perhaps a fallen part from a satellite and that its crash had somehow caused the fire. There was no evidence that the ball had caused the fire, however, and without any impact crater, no evidence that it had even crashed there at all. They entertained the idea, along with some friends, that it could be an old cannonball, since the history of Fort George Island as a strategic sailing landmark on an Atlantic port dated back to the 16th century. But no other evidence for the cause of the fire was ever found either. The ball was seamless, it seemed solid, and it didn't appear to be dangerous, so Terry put it on the windowsill in his bedroom as a curiosity, and no one really thought much of it. Two weeks later, Terry Betts was in his bedroom studying with his girlfriend. He stood to take a break from the books, stretched, and picked up his guitar to practice a few chords. At first, he picked each string to be sure it was in tune, and as he did, he and his girlfriend heard a sort of echo come from the bedroom window. They instinctively looked at the only thing there, this silver metal ball Terry had found after the fire. Terry Betts played a single string and the ball vibrated back much like a tuning fork. Some notes had no effect and others caused the ball to sustain a long ring. He played a few chords and some chords caused the ball to emit a throbbing pulse, what he described as stabbing. Now, this is interesting because it reminds me of this idea of aliens using music as a sort of universal language to communicate with us. We know NASA put a golden record aboard each of the Voyager probes around this same time in the late 70s. The contents of those records included natural sounds of surf, wind, birds, whales, and thunder, as well as 27 songs from many countries and cultures. 
It also played 55 people saying hello in 55 languages. That is one of the coolest things we as a species have ever done. I thought so then when I was a kid and learned about the golden record and I still think so now. The next Patreon bonus episode is all about the golden record we send into space on those probes, so be sure to check it out. It is an amazing part of Earth history. We also saw that in the movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, those visiting aliens used music to communicate with us. I'm still not clear on how that all worked, sort of vague in the movie, but remember that the Betts sphere was found three years before Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie, would come out. Doesn't mean anything definitive, it's just interesting. And we've brought up Close Encounters of the Third Kind in previous Renegade Files episodes, and beyond this little leap, we'll see this movie swing back around to tie into the Bet Spear story later, so stay tuned. So this moment when the strange metal ball reacted to the guitar notes was the first time the family started to realize that this thing might be even stranger than they had initially thought. A few days later, they brought the ball down to the living room and placed it on a table where Mother Jerry and Terry talked further about how and why it might be responding to music, and suddenly, the ball began to roll. They watched, astonished, as the heavy metal sphere rolled right up to the table edge then stopped, changed directions, rolled back to the far edge, stopped again and continued to roll around the table on its own, stopping any time it came to an edge, and then going back. It eventually came to a stop and the mother and son just looked at each other. In the day that followed, they invited other family members over to see the sphere. One relative, a 12-year-old cousin named Wayne Betts, was transfixed by the object, barely able to take his eyes off of it, and drawn to continually touch it. At one point, the boy placed the sphere on the floor, rolled it away with a gentle push, and the others watched in amazement as the ball rolled about eight feet away, stopped, and rolled back to the boy sitting cross-legged on the wooden floor. One time, the ball rolled for 12 minutes straight without ever pausing. The family noticed that the ball would become more active on sunny, clear days, even though it remained indoors, and it would become virtually inert on cloudy or rainy days. If people walked past it, the ball would follow them. It would throb and hum at random hours. One photographer, Lou Edner, visited the house to see the ball, and he said the ball had, quote, a life of its own. Being well-connected with the local community, Jerry Betts must have known or been introduced to Helen Bates. She was a writer for the daily newspaper, the Florida Times Union. And this is where we find the first known article about the Betts sphere in the media. The article was entitled, Bizarre Sphere is Castle's Latest Mystery Happening, 1974. And if you're anything like me, that headline referring to the castle's latest mystery happening got your attention. And so I went on the search for the history of the house, and you guessed it, this gets weird. More on that later. So with some newspaper publicity about the Bet Sphere, as it was coming to be known around town, we get another witness in the personality of Ron Cavett. Ron Cavett was the host of an old radio show called Tales of Strange Things, which aired on local Jacksonville radio in the 70s. His show was very much like a local coast-to-coast AM, and he would tell stories about ghosts and UFOs and also take listener calls on the air. Brave, right? One of his listeners informed him about the Bet Sphere, referring him to the newspaper article and soon, he visited the house to see the ball for himself. While there, he witnessed the ball roll across a glass coffee table and stop at the sheer sharp edge. Let's listen to Ron Cavett in his own words, 
as he's being interviewed by Lindsay Kilbride from WCJT Public Media for her production called Oddball, which is an outstanding five-part podcast series about the bet sphere, and I'll link to that show in the show notes. It's great, so check it out. And Lindsay is just excellent. So let's listen to Ron Cavett from her show. The ball was sitting on a glass top table uh, and with no edge on it. Mm -hmm. You know, the glass just was a sheer cut piece of glass. And uh, I was really surprised, like I said, to see as many scratches on it. I was expecting this pristine looking, you know, thing like you see in the science fiction movies, but it looked like it was well used. And so we talked about it and, and, you know, how they found it, what, you know, all of those things. And I said, well, you know, I'd like to get some pictures of it. And uh, I said, well, you know, let's go outside where we got plenty of good sunlight and uh, we'll find a place out there. So we all got up and started to go outside and I was the last one out. And as I was going out, the ball rolled from the center of the table all the way to the edge and stopped. And it was almost like, hey, don't forget me. <laughs> you know. So uh, we picked it up, took it outside with us. You know, I, I'd heard about it moving. You know, they told me that it moved across the carpet and things like that. But to think that it actually did that all by itself and the fact that it didn't roll off of the edge of the table. You know, if somebody would have pushed it or nudged it or something like that, uh, it would have gone all the way off. Part two, the official examinations. Eventually, two things became obvious to the Betts family, and in particular, to matriarch Jerry Betts, who it seems was their undisputed and well-loved leader. These two obvious facts were that no one knew what the ball was and that it was unique and warranted investigation. Jacksonville, Florida is an industrial port and it is also home to a Navy base. So Jerry arranged a meeting with some officials from the Navy in the process of having the Bet sphere studied in an attempt to find out what it was, where it was from, and in short, to learn anything about it. As I mentioned earlier, Jerry Betts was an intelligent and successful businesswoman, and we'll go into a bit of her background now. She grew up in a lower to lower middle class family in rural Georgia and was married as a young adult to a man with whom she had, I think, six children. And this man was a long distance truck driver. By all accounts, however, not a successful one, and for whatever reason, the large but young family struggled with the father away on the road most of the time and the bills piling up at home. Eventually, the mismanagement of his truck driving endeavors led to his default on the truck loan, that's a semi-truck, and the family was facing their hardest times yet. At this point, Jerry took things into her own hands, divorced her husband, her now ex-husband left her with the six kids and this delinquent semi-truck. So she approached the bank. I don't think she told them about the divorce yet, and she convinced them to give her a month to begin repaying the truck loan again. In that month, she began calling and visiting local produce packers and grocery stores. Most people at that time, in the late 60s, wouldn't even talk to her after they learned that she was the only one, a woman, running this business or trying to make this business. In spite of this, she was able to secure a contract to use this truck to haul vegetables and fruit from a few farms to one grocery store. Quickly meeting and exceeding the shipping expectations caused the grocery store to ask Jerry if she could haul all of their deliveries from every farm in the state. So she started visiting truck stops and she hired, I think, 11 independent truck drivers and her business was off. She was even featured in a business magazine of the day for her success. She was 32 years old when that article came out. As near as I can tell, she married Antoine Betts sometime following this and brought her six kids with her and they eventually moved into the large home on Fort George Island. 
Antoine being a successful marine engineer. But throughout these stories, you never hear much about him. As a matter of fact, I would characterize him as conspicuously absent from all of this. Both before and after the finding of the Betts Sphere, Jerry Betts was also active in local government. She donated large pieces of property to the Parks Commission, and she butted heads with some local officials when they sought to create a public bus line that she thought would be a waste of money. I don't understand the logistics of it, but although she was wealthy by then, she was also self-made and thrifty, and it seems like she hated waste. Or hates waste. At one point, she even got her public transportation busing license in order to have some authority to oppose this unnecessary bus line, which she viewed as simply a means to line the pockets of the special bus company interests in bed with these local politicians. The powers that be tried to revoke her busing license, and a lot of the articles you find when researching the family are centered around this issue. I'm not sure whatever became of that. The point is, it seems like Jerry Betts was and is a serious, sober, involved member of the community who has and had way more to do than make up stories about the way some ball moved around by itself in her house. It's unclear who initiated the contact, but eventually, as I mentioned, Jerry met with a Navy engineer who agreed to take possession of the sphere in order to study it. Being the shrewd negotiator and business person that she was, she framed the arrangement with a contract that stipulated a few smart points. Mainly, the Navy had two weeks to study the ball. At the end of those two weeks, she would be provided with a full report detailing anything they learned about the object, its functions, origin, and purpose. And in that time, if the Navy could not prove that the ball was government property, it was to be returned to Jerry Betts intact. The Navy agreed and took the ball. So now, and I can't resist, the ball was in the Navy's court. They tried to x-ray it, but their initial equipment wasn't powerful enough, so they took it to a second location with stronger equipment, x-rayed it, and found out that it was hollow. It had a shell about one inch thick, and inside there were two smaller balls, very small, like marble-sized as far as I can find out. The ball was made of a high-quality but common stainless steel with some nickel. It had four magnetic poles, which seems odd to me, and the Navy fully admitted that they had no idea what it was, but they did conclude that it was probably made on Earth. There was no indication that the object belonged to the Navy or anyone else they could find. All of this was in the report they created for Jerry Betts, and a Navy official set out to transfer the report and the ball back to the owners. Before the two-week deadline, a military officer arrived at the Betts mansion and presented the ball and the report to Jerry. While he was there, her phone rang. The caller was a man who asked if the officer was still there and Jerry said that he was and she handed the telephone to the man who had returned the sphere. According to Jerry, the man on her end spoke in quick answers such as, Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. Affirmative. Will do, sir. Thank you. The man then hung up the phone and asked for the sphere back. Jerry told him no, and that he could only have it if he returned with a warrant for the object and a letter from a civilian judge showing cause. I love her. The officer left, and after that, the family made a point to protect the sphere. They all agreed to never let it out of their sight again, and Jerry made mention of insuring the object for $1 million, but it's unclear if she ever actually did so. And here is where things take a decidedly conspiratorial turn. It's after this encounter that we begin to see articles appearing in not only local, but national newspapers claiming that the Betts family, and Jerry in particular, believe that they have found an object from outer space that was either lost by aliens 
or sent here by aliens to spy on Earthlings. The Navy is also a cast member in these articles and they say that they studied the object and they determined that it had been made on Earth, which is true, but they never again admit in any of these articles that they have no idea exactly what the sphere is and Jerry Betts begins to be cast as a crazy UFO and alien believer, which was never the case. She was just curious and was looking for answers and it seems like no one had any. And it's around this time that the ball takes another trip. Part 3. New Orleans and Beyond Sometime after the Navy had returned the Bet Sphere to the family, the National Enquirer launched a contest that consisted of a $50,000 prize for any evidence proving the existence of aliens. Now, the National Enquirer was, and is, a dubious publication and it's viewed as entertainment at best and outright fabrications of sensationalism at worst. But the panel they assembled was made up of actual and respected scientists and there's no reason to think they would be anything but objective and honest in evaluating any of the objects or evidence presented at the contest. Particularly since the panel concluded that most of the evidence presented, including the Bet Sphere, was nothing alien at all. By this point, I think that Jerry Betts just wanted to know or learn anything conclusive about the sphere, so she arranged for her son, Terry, he's the one who had found the object in the first place, to travel to New Orleans to present the ball for study by this National Enquirer project, which he did. The panel they formed consisted of Dr. Robert F. Cregan, Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle, Dr. James Harder, and guess who else? That's right, our old friend, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Recall that Hynek was a consultant on the Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie, and this is where that movie wraps back around. In that movie, as I mentioned, aliens use music to communicate with humans, and here we have Hynek on a panel to investigate a potential object from some other planet that seems to respond to music, or at least to frequencies or vibrations, and no one has a clue what this thing is. While working on this episode, I have amassed videos of these proceedings, photos of the sphere, pictures of all the people involved, newspaper articles, and extensive research documents, and you can see all of that in the dark intel files for this case on the Renegade Files Patreon page through the link in the show notes. Here, we have an audio recording of Terry Betts providing testimony at the UFO-proof panel in New Orleans. The experts are seated at a long table. The Betts sphere is on a stand in front of them. The table is covered with a white tablecloth. It's the 70s, so there are ashtrays on the table as well. J. Allen Hynek is smoking a pipe. And on the wood-paneled wall behind and above the men is a banner that reads National Enquirer Blue Ribbon Panel of UFO Investigators. That is so cool. So let's listen to Terry Betts, in his own words, tell the panel about him finding the sphere. I have no knowledge of how the sphere itself happened to be in the place where I found it. Um, as I've stated previously, when I found it, it was on top of the ground, it was not embedded. Um, I saw no charred marks, no, you know, no big indentations in the ground. In fact, it looks as if, as if someone had taken it and set it in the spot. But uh, as to how it got there, I, nor anyone else I know, has any knowledge of this. As part of this panel, Hynek inspected the sphere. The panel had access to the Navy's reports on the device, so Hynek would have known the composition to be stainless steel. Maybe he even saw the x-rays. The panel heard Terry Betts' testimony about what the device had done, but none of the tests performed by the panel yielded any results. 
in short, the ball never rolled anywhere or made any sounds, and it just sat there as they all looked at it. In the end, Hynek concluded that the bet sphere was nothing special and was probably some industrial stainless ball used in manufacturing or some such earthly enterprise. And here is where things get suspicious. While Terry was at this event, officials from the Navy approached him and told him that his mother was seriously ill or that there had been some accident and he had to return home at once. Terry tried unsuccessfully to phone his mother multiple times and he was unable to reach any family or friends who could tell him what the situation was, so he left immediately and made the drive from New Orleans back to Jacksonville. When he entered his mansion home, he found his mother there, completely fine, and asking why he was home and what was happening with the sphere. He told her what had happened and that he had feared that she had fallen seriously ill or been in some kind of accident, and then he left again to speed through the night and collect, once more, their mysterious silver ball. He did and once home, all was back to normal. Well, I mean, it it was back to, well, the ball was back. (laughs) But after this, it's unclear if the ball started to move around and sing again, and we don't hear much in the way of those kinds of reports after that. After this New Orleans blue ribbon panel, the Betts family stopped talking about the sphere. The newspaper reports faded in frequency, and soon they stopped altogether. Then, many months later, Jerry received an unexpected phone call. Hello, Jerry. This is Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Of course, you will remember me as the famed UFO expert. I presided on the blue ribbon panel of UFO investigators for the National Enquirer and inspected your silver ball. I am calling to ask if you would please ship me the ball to my office in Chicago so that I may study it further. Now, this is suspicious because Heineck had already studied the device for some time in New Orleans and he concluded that there was nothing remarkable about it that it was just a steel ball from Earth. If that was the case, why then, some months later, would he try to get it shipped to him so he could study it more? But Jerry refused and she told him that if he wanted to study the ball, he would have to do it at her home on Fort George Island. So that's just what Hynek did. He flew into Jacksonville, took the ferry to the island, and spent three days with the Betzes at their mansion home. By all accounts, Jerry and Hynek got along well, and she described him as courteous, professional, and a man of high intellect and character. One of his nights there, he asked if he could keep the ball in his room to do some tests, which Jerry allowed. And the next day, he said his goodbyes and left on the best of terms, although he had provided no new answers about this mysterious silver bet sphere. Now, as I said before, it's unclear whether the ball ever did anything once Terry returned it from New Orleans, but what we do know is that Jerry Betts has said specifically that after Hynek's visit that the ball was never the same. The rattling once heard when the ball was shaken had stopped. The ball was x-rayed again and the tiny balls inside were gone. And the inside also appeared to show a seam that was never there before. Then, years later, in a suspicious twist, Paul Hynek, the son of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, made an offhand remark about his family having a shiny metal ball among the many strange artifacts in their home when he was a kid growing up. Lindsay Kilbride, who I mentioned before, interviewed Paul Hynek for her Bet Sphere Focus podcast called Oddball, and after listening to that, I'm not convinced that J. Allen Hynek swiped the ball. 
it seems wildly out of character. We'll get into my theories on this Hynek stealing the sphere idea in the summary, so stay tuned. As if all of this wasn't weird enough? Part 4. The House is Haunted The Betts House was originally built in the 1920s by Mellon Greeley, a prominent Jacksonville architect for Melton Neff, who was a Chicago real estate developer. Neff's wife died in a fire at their Michigan summer home. Then, just a few years later, Neff's son hung himself, and eventually, Neff shot and killed himself in his Chicago office. While these tales are tragic, and they may seem to lend more speculation to the haunted house idea of the Fort George Island castle, none of these people ever actually lived in the house, and none of them died in it. In fact, no one lived in the house until 1967 when the Betts family moved in, and no one has lived there for decades since they moved out. The house is now boarded up by the National Park Service, which it seems is the organization Jerry Betts has donated this property to. This house sits now in the middle of a park, although the road to it is fenced off. But when the Betts family did live there, and before they found their curious ball, the house had a long history of hauntings and paranormal activity. Some of the stories include a maid who quit after being scared by strange events. Many people at a party were witnesses to two heavy French doors swing closed by themselves. These are large interior wooden doors. The Betts family would also hear organ music playing throughout the house, yet they owned no organ. And this happened at all hours when no radio or television was on. All of this before finding the sphere. You might find some stories about the sphere emanating organ music, but the organ music was just part of the hauntings, not the sphere. Get it right, internet. Between the time that the original owners had built the property and the Betts family moved in, and this is a long stretch, you know, from the 20s to the 60s, the house was managed by a property caretaker, and this person would periodically check in on the empty house. I don't know if it was the same person throughout that entire time or if it was just the same company that managed it, but they told stories of locking the house up for the winter then returning months later to find objects strewn about the house, but no evidence of a break-in. At least one person from this company said that on several occasions while he was cleaning downstairs, he heard the sound of furniture being moved upstairs in rooms with no furniture in them. Doors would open or close on their own, so things like that. Sandy Strickland, a Florida Times Union reporter, interviewed Jerry Betts in 1975 for Sandy's Halloween-themed article entitled Haunted House, Fort George Mansion Has Aura of Mystery. In that article, Jerry recounts stories of paranormal activity in the house. It's all strange, especially since the notion of the house they lived in being haunted doesn't come up that much in all of the many stories about the family and them finding this sphere and the things that it supposedly did. I just find it weird. My summary. The first thing I want to talk about here is that notion that J. Allen Hynek stole the bet sphere after visiting the house and studying the thing for a few days. We know that upon his departure, Jerry said the ball wasn't the same and that it never moved on its own after that, but it never moved for Hynek while he was there either. In fact, it never moved outside of the Betts' home as far as we know. It never moved for the panel in New Orleans or for the Navy before that. Yes, Paul Hynek, J. Allen Hynek's son, said that they had a silver ball among his father's many strange items growing up. 
but he also said that while his father may have salvaged a potentially important document headed for the shredder, he never would have stolen private property, and I believe that. The Heineck family had many strange things around the house, to be sure. Paintings of UFOs, flying saucer models, possible alien artifacts, and memorabilia from a lifetime of studying the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I think it's far more likely that Heineck had a silver metal ball he had acquired in his process of studying the Bet Sphere, and he kept that as a memento. There are many such stainless steel balls, and we'll get to those in a minute. But regarding the ball being switched, remember the strange story about someone connected with running the panel or the Navy in New Orleans insisting that Terry's mother had been in some accident or had some medical emergency? And that directly caused Terry Betts to leave the conference, rush home, find his mother perfectly fine. He then rushed back to retrieve the ball. It's much more believable, at least to me, that someone involved in this charade swiped the ball and replaced it at that point. There aren't any records of the ball driving around the Betts house after that that I know of. And that leads me to the next observation that I have about this case. Where is the film of this thing moving on its own? This wasn't the 1800s. It was the mid-1970s. Sure, that was a long time ago now, especially in our faster and faster culture of amnesia, but they fully had home movie cameras then. And this was a wealthy family who lived in a mansion on an island. The son was pre-med, The dad, or at least the husband, was an engineer. The mom was a feisty modern businesswoman who stood her ground with naval officers and the leading government scientists of the day as well as the local politicians. Surely this family had the resources and the technical faculties to own and operate a home video camera. In fact, it's harder to believe that they didn't have one. A wealthy family with a mansion, 88 acres on an island on the edge of one of the biggest cities in Florida. The wife a celebrated do-it-yourself entrepreneur. The husband a marine engineer with a 20-year-old son going to medical school and five other kids in 1974. Don't have a home movie camera? Or two? Not only that, we aren't talking about getting lucky and capturing a glimpse of a UFO that appeared for 20 seconds. They had this 20-pound stainless steel sphere in their house for years. They carted it around the country. They invited people over to watch it roll around tables without falling off. Newspaper reporters photographed it. In an era when home movie cameras were all the rage. So where is the video? No original Bet Sphere video that I can find, but what's equally strange is that I couldn't even find any discussion about the absence of this video. There's plenty of YouTube videos about the Bet Sphere, but there's no videos of it moving around on its own. Maybe they did film the ball moving around at the Betts home and they just kept the footage to themselves, but this seems unlikely, especially given that the Betts family went to such great lengths to have the ball studied. Giving the ball to the Navy, carting it to New Orleans, letting J. Allen Hynek visit the ball at their house for a few days inviting reporters into their home to take pictures and write stories about it. And this is over a long period of time. People started calling them crazy. UFO fanatics started trespassing on their property. Oddballs, no pun intended, knocking on their door or phoning them at all hours to ask about this sphere. You would think that if they had film of the ball moving around, we would have heard about it. 
and it's weird that no one is really talking about this lack of movie footage. I mentioned that there are other balls like this one, so let's get into what those are. One of the most compelling explanations for the ball's origin is the idea that it is part of a large ball check valve assembly used in industrial water pumps. We can think of this as a heavy-duty floating ball that rises to stopper up a giant water pipe. This is exactly the kind of machinery used in paper mills, and there was a paper mill near Jacksonville at this time. There was also a nearby company that manufactured these stainless steel balls for the equipment used at that paper mill. There is a documented story of an artist who had procured several of these balls, and it seems like the ones he got his hands on were not, strictly speaking, stolen, but that they may have been defective or imperfect ones that weren't in use, and I think someone the guy knew worked at the plant that made the balls, and he took them and gave them to his artist friend who had plans to use these steel balls in a sculpture of some kind. The story is that this artist had loaded the stainless balls, quite a few, I think more than 10, into his Volkswagen van and headed out of Jacksonville, or was at least driving through that area, and he admits that at least one or maybe more of these borderline illicit metal balls fell out of a box he had strapped to the roof of his van while driving along. One investigation traced a few routes and determined that it was highly improbable that any roadway that artist could have been driving on was close enough for one of these balls to just roll off the van and into the woods where Terry Betts found it. But this midnight stainless steel ball run had occurred three years prior to Terry Betts finding the sphere on his property after the now famous fire. Remember that the family had initially thought that trespassing campers could have started the fire by accident. Their property is on an island that has a state park on it. It's surrounded by a river and an inlet to the Atlantic Ocean, so tons of boat traffic. There are also roads to and throughout this island. And the artist guy dropped the ball, so to speak, three years before the bets found it. It's possible, however unusual, that someone could have found this strange ball on the roadside. It would have at least been in the general vicinity of the Betts' land. Then later, whoever found it left it on this wooded estate, who knows exactly how or why. Kids. This doesn't explain the ball rolling around, dodging table edges, following cousins around the house, singing along with the guitar, and rolling in crazy patterns for 12 minutes straight. But all of those accounts are anecdotal. They are just tales told by one or two members of a family, and although corroborated by others, anecdotally corroborated nonetheless. There are no home movies of the ball rolling around on its own, despite this happening at a time when movie cameras were available for both home and professional use. There isn't even any mention of the lack of movie footage, which seems really weird to me. In the end, this is a truly unsolved mystery. We're talking about a house with a fully haunted history. Maybe the haunting energies, whatever they may be, were reacting on and with this ball. The ball only ever moved on its own inside the Bet's house, right? It's stainless steel. It's hollow. It has four magnetic poles and it's perfectly balanced. Bring something like that into a haunted house and you're surprised it does weird stuff? I think this is a paranormal situation, but even more complex than an artifact from space. Actually, that would be the more normal answer. I'm going to keep it real, like I always try to do for you here on Renegade Files. I think what we have here is a precision object, probably from a paper mill, being brought into a freaking haunted house and things got weird. 
Then, invite the Navy, the National Enquirer, and J. Allen Hynek around to dig the vibe of this thing, and you have a national story that goes largely unexplained. I think, and this is just Lex Gordon's opinion, that the shady crew at the Enquirer panel got together with the Navy or someone who knew that it was there. This event was on the national news, remember? And the Navy had already tried to get the ball back when they first studied it and returned it to Jerry Betts, but she told them to step off. I think the Navy used the National Enquirer panel to trick Terry Betts into running home, and they used that ploy to get the ball back just like they had already tried to do at the Betts mansion previously. They switched it out with another ball just like it. We know they make them, and the Navy knows that too. J. Allen Hynek gets blamed for stealing the ball in certain circles, but that's not his style. I guess the ultimate question is why? What's so special about this particular ball that the Navy would go through all of that, if they did, to get it? What is it about this particular ball that would cause J. Allen Hynek to look at it, go away, and then come back to look at it again, on his own dime, a plane flight away? What is it about this particular ball that would cause Jerry Betts to turn her entire life, a successful, happy, peaceful life, upside down for it? And where is the original Betts sphere now? Who has it? And what are they doing with it? Is it in a crate in that government warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Fools. Bureaucratic fools. They have no idea what they've got there. Thank you for joining me to investigate this strange case of the Bet Sphere. I had a ball. <laughs> I'm so happy and glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. And a grateful shout out to the RFA agents who make the show possible by helping me on Patreon. If you like Renegade Files and you think I do a good job making the episodes, Please help me keep the show going by donating a small amount on patreon.com slash renegadefiles or just click the link in the show notes. In return for your help, you get bonus episodes and extra Renegade Files content. It's free to check out the Renegade Files Patreon page, so click that link now. Thank you for supporting the show, and I'll see you in there. Until our next paranormal investigation, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, indigo child. <laughs> <laughs>